You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and I just have to warn you a little bit so you do not get disappointed. This podcast will not actually be done in one consecutive take. Even though we do not need to maneuver hundreds, if not thousands of extras, even though we do not need to strive to catch frames of cinematic glory as we wander through mansions or streets. And yet, that's probably for the best, because we do not really want to inflict you with our in- unedited ass, ums, sighs, and, and awkward silences. With that said, let's just start diving straight into the sparse world of the single take film. And this is an interesting one because last year we did an episode where we talked about single location films and just incredible numbers of ways it was used. And, and yes, I'm plugging that episode. But that was probably from the very first moment a clear issue of just having to edit the amount of films down. I, I think we mentioned over 20 different films, well over 20 different films. And we had to leave so many films on the cutting room floor. Even after we were done and everything was recorded, it kept remembering and realizing films they probably should have included, but didn't. The amount of single location films are just so huge. But when we look at single take films, and that is both films genuinely shot in one consecutive session with no cuts whatsoever and films that have some early cuts or films that are just cut and edited together to appear like it's a singular take i mean there's almost none of them especially of the ones that you know are actually real i mean yes there are apparently some interesting examples of live theater in my research, uh, I did run into something called Lost in London. Apparently, Woody Harrelson gets lost in London and it's filmed in one take. But generally, there's just so, so few, especially in terms of actual distribution and notice. So why are there so few? Well, we'll tell you, or at least try. And should we falter, stutter, or make any mistakes, you won't know about them. As once again, this episode is edited for your benefit. With me today to break down the biggest films and to marvel at just how they manage these technical feats are my two absolutely wonderful co-hosts, Clem and Mathieu. So introduce yourselves, guys, and let's get this started. All right, hey, this is Clem. I'm really happy to be back. Hi, this is Mathieu. And yeah, we are back from a break and ready to talk single take films. All right, so just, just to get this conversation started, What's the first single take film you remember watching and what was your reaction? I think the first for me was Victoria, which we'll talk about later. And my reaction was to be very impressed. Uh, (laughs) I guess I don't remember if I was told before that it would be one take. I think I was. But in any case, seeing it, I I was thinking, I want to see more things like this. I want to, to see this done more. And I didn't know about Russian arc. I didn't know it was already kind of a thing. For me, I believe the first film I watch, even though it's not really a one-take film, is Rope by Hitchcock. My reaction to it, I liked it. From what I remember, I uh, thought it gave some kind of uh, 
theater feeling that I uh, really, really liked. Yeah, my first one was probably also uh, Rope, though I have to be completely honest with you. I didn't remember it as a single take film. I'm not even sure if I was aware of it at the time, which is odd. <laughs> I mean, it works really well. It's really suspenseful. But I, I probably saw it at the time and I wasn't really focused on how the films I was watching were made in, in the same way. And I just missed the fact that <laughs> there weren't any obvious cuts. Yeah, I have this problem with aspect ratios. All the time I see reviews where they mention a film where, oh, and then they change aspect ratios. It's amazing. And I'm like, okay, I'm sure they did. <laughs> I did not notice it. <laughs> it's, it's just, yeah, sometimes if, if you're not aware of it, I guess if you're just absorbed by the storytelling or the suspense, you don't really think about the camera cutting and when it cuts. I think that's kind of like what people talk, used to talk about as the magic of cinema. I think it's mostly a positive. It's, it's you being really immersed in the film, which is arguably one of the goals of those techniques. And yeah, not questioning the, the technique too much. I think that's mostly good, but maybe less good to comment on films on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast will comment on their uh, films and how you comment on them. That's uh, perfect, yeah. I think I've taken it slightly towards, you know, the meta element and enjoying how the film is made as well, which, which might also be why I'm very often drawn to one-take films, especially in preparation of uh, this episode. It was really great watching and re-watching a couple of single-take films and just uh, marveling at how they were actually done. And I know you guys did the same, but just generally, is a single-take film something you're drawn to? If you see something promoted as a single-take, is that something you take a closer look at? Definitely. Definitely, it's something that makes me want to see a film. I don't know that I particularly seek them out. Some of the films I saw for this episode, I had heard about before and I hadn't watched them before. So I don't really actively seek them out necessarily. But if I'm choosing what to watch in theaters, hearing that something is shot in one take does interest me. It just makes it stand out. And it's a technique I generally enjoy, even if I don't enjoy all the films. Yes, it's something I uh, enjoy as well, definitely, which makes it even more a shame that there are so few one-take films that are being made. I think it's also why I enjoy them so much, because they're so rare and uh, different from the rest, which could be why I'm, uh, we are so uh, interested in them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I guess if they were pushing out the massive single-take films in, on the big screen every single week, it might not be something we would be talking about the same way. But for obvious reasons, that hasn't been the case yet. And there's just so much work that goes into making a single-take film. I mean, essentially everything has to go off well. What do you guys think is the payoff of all that work? Do single-take films manage to create an effect that regular films can't? I guess I would say definitely yes to that. Whether or not it works for the film is another question. Obviously, that depends. But single-take films, they do feel different than other films always, even if you're not aware of it. It's something that's unique. It's very difficult to do, obviously, for, for a bunch of technical reasons, but it does uh, make a film stand out, not just in terms of marketing, but even watching it. Yeah, I, I do think it's, it's quite effective, especially at being immersive. That's, to me, the main quality, even though it's not the only thing it can be used for. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Uh, I think films taking place in real time are more immersive than uh, other type of films. And there are two ways you can make that. So a film in real time, you can just uh, make a regular film with cuts, or you can do a one-take film. And I think adding this one-take to real time is even more immersive. No, I absolutely agree. I definitely think that's an interesting way to differentiate between single-take films. The ones that are in real time, 
versus the ones that aren't. Oh, yeah. Because I feel like the one in real time, they really go for this immersive feeling, whereas the other ones, they do have that as well, but often it's kind of for maybe different reasons that they use this single take. So maybe it's a way to categorize, I guess, uh, single take films, even though there aren't that many. That's a very good point, Matthew. And I think we're going to see that when we talk about these films as well, that this you know, technical feat is used to create very different experiences, either putting you straight into the situation of the characters that you're following or, or being used as a way to absorb you into something um, massive and, and just visually engaging. So I think you're definitely right there. And just building on what you just said, Clem, that you could technically get away with the effect of real time with cuts as well. And, and that's one of the main things I really thought about when I was watching Rope uh, just a couple of days ago, is that at that time, I think we need to talk about this, it, it's, the, it's the closest thing you could get to a single take because it was shot essentially 10 minutes at the time, which was more or less the length of a film, uh, film role at the time. So it couldn't be longer. It was impossible. Like, so unless you made a 10-minute uh, short film, you couldn't have a real, uncut, singular take. But from Hitchcock's perspective, this was the only way, or the best way, to really drive suspense, to know that the body was always there, essentially. But at the same time, like I said, I, I didn't think about that single take the first time I saw it. It does move incredibly well. You get all of the close-ups all of the large angles, etc. The camera is remarkably well equipped to the point that even though it does feel a little like a play, it still feels quite cinematic. It still feels like a Hitchcock film. So it's uh, very interesting that he went for that effect and that he went for that effect in a time when it wasn't technically possible. I think in the case of Rope, it also helps that Hitchcock is such a playful director. I was very aware of the single take thing with Rope when I watched it, probably because I had heard of it, and all those uh, techniques he uses to hide the transition, he's not even really hiding it that much. I mean, he's going behind the back of someone. I always feel, when I'm watching a Hitchcock film, that there are moments where he kind of winks at you, and the moments in Hope where <laughs> he hides the cuts are kind of like that for me. And I think because he has that playful energy, and it's definitely present in Hope, even though it's a very dark subject matter, and I think that makes that conceit work better than maybe it would for another director at that time. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. When I first saw it, I don't remember if I was aware of the one-take aspect of the film, but I thought it was an um, interesting and unusual way to make a film, especially for a film at that time, because the film came out in the 40s. I remember a few transitions being quite obvious, but uh, I think I must have missed some because um, I have only one or two cuts in my mind that are quite obvious, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure there are some I must have missed. Because, Chris, if you said that you could only record 10 minutes at a time, it must mean you had about, what, 8 or 9 cuts? Yes, 8 or 9 cuts, yeah. Yeah, and I think I only spotted like 1 or 2. So maybe I wasn't paying attention, or um, mm. maybe uh, maybe he achieved what he wanted to do as this uh, one-take uh, illusion. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I was actually trying to play a little game while I was watching it as well, and spot the cuts, and, and I couldn't. Like, I, I caught the obvious ones that Mathieu were talking about, like the one where it glides into someone's back and it goes dark for a second, or when they shoot the door and there's no one there for a second, or when they go over the, the box and no one's there for a second. But in most cases, I couldn't be sure, because it's just done so, so 
well. Like the characters are still moving around the screen. There's still action going on. And somehow he manages to catch them at the exact right spot. So it's just really impressive to me how he managed to uh, create that illusion. Yeah, yeah, same, same as Clem, actually. I thought it was three or four shots, not, not like eight or nine. I think it, what helps also with Hitchcock is, again, his general style, is the fact that he loves inserts. And so that's, as you mentioned, the box, right? It helps with transitions when you're looking at just an object. He was kind of the perfect filmmaker for it at that time. And obviously, it's great for thrillers. I mean, it's not only used in thrillers, but this technique tends to be used well in thrillers. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Hitchcock is so famous liking to put something into his film. Like, I mean, there's a classic scene of a film we won't spoil, where, you know, the child carries a bomb onto a bus and we don't uh, know if uh, the, the child will live or not. We just know that the bomb is there. I mean, he's so good at placing an element, be that a MacGuffin or not, into his films so that it just adds that little extra suspense. And obviously in Rope, we start with a murder. It's placed in, or the body rather, is placed in, in a box. And then they invite the parents of uh, the murder victim and the murder victim's fiance and friend and uh, put on this macabre show. And I think that you have both that element of suspense just being right there. But then you also have this extremely black humor because throughout this film, like you have these two killers that almost acting a little bit like the killers from Funny Games. I mean, not exactly, but they're kind of just <laughs> winking and having fun. And at least one of them especially is just really enjoying the show they're putting on. Yeah, and James Stewart spewing the most <laughs> terrible ide ideology you've ever heard. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which is pretty remarkable given his persona at the time. I mean, he was generally playing, like in Frank Capra films, and I mean, he was generally playing heroes. And this changed around that era, I guess, after the war. Anyway, that's another topic. Yeah, and not just heroes. I mean, he was essentially the Tom Hanks of the era. He went from It's a Wonderful Life to this, so... Yeah. <laughs> like, maybe he was tired of being typecast. Is, it, is that literally the case? Is, is It's a Wonderful Life literally the film right before? It can't be, no? Because it's two-year gap. Oh, yeah, it's two years. Okay, so no. But uh, pretty much, yeah, pretty much. So that's, that is a remarkable, remarkable transformation. Obviously, he did some really creepy roles yeah. uh, or really uh, harsh roles after this film as well. So it, it, it worked, I suppose. And on the topic of James Stewart, he actually had a really uh, interesting uh, quote about Hitchcock's uh, single-take film. I'm going to butcher it, so I'm just going to say the message he had. But essentially, he said that he hated it because he felt that the camera was the star, not the actors. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. I mean, he's still very good in the film, though. Yeah, and I'm not sure if I agree with him either, because it's shot in such a way that it does, like, like you mentioned, like it feels a little bit like a play. It does actually put almost more focus on the actors. It almost feels like... <laughs> uh, looks like he did it's... go from It's a Wonderful Life to Hope. Well, that's... Wow! So you had that one year gap. That's fantastic. Thank you for the research. Clem, <laughs> <laughs> Clem, check that. Yeah, apparently yeah, he, didn't, he didn't do any film, according to Wikipedia, he didn't do any film in uh, 1947. So he went from It's a Wonderful Life in 1946 to Rope in 1948. So he was just kicking himself for two years that he has to get out of that slump and get something more challenging or <laughs> creepy. Very good. I think it's an interesting one, like you said, because at least for me, the camera is a little bit invisible in rope as well it does give a lot of room for the performers i mean in general when you cut all the time i would say that the performers are the ones losing out a little bit because they have to 
you know, stop and retake the exact performance for the close-up every time. So I'm not sure if I entirely agree with Stuart, but obviously he's the actor, so he and he was in it, so he can have his own opinion on it. At least for me, I, I think Rob works really well both as that you know, unique exercise and as a thriller, dark comedy and suspense film from Hitchcock. It means it really covers all the boxes and has that you know really dark, gleeful humor that Hitchcock produced so well. But I think Stuart's reaction is interesting because. You see a lot of very strong reactions against the idea of single takes from people who say essentially that cinema is editing, right? That editing is what oh, yeah. sets cinema apart from especially theater. And that when you take that away, you're just kind of, you know, why, why are you cutting your own leg or something like that, right? You're, you're just cutting off a tool for no particular reason, or at least mm. that's what those people would argue. And I do think it's interesting how it blurs the line between cinema and theater, I think it's definitely the case for Hope, which is just takes place mm -hmm. in, in a single location. You also have films that use that without feeling like plays. Um, I think oh, Victoria yeah. doesn't feel like a play, for example. Yeah, Rope is actually uh, an adaptation from a play, so which, which might explain. Uh, I think it's interesting, the, the idea of uh, well play and uh, having this uh, one take. Because yeah, I agree, it definitely blurs the line between uh, theater and cinema especially when it's uh, in a single location like Rope is, because it almost feels like it's actually a play taking place, but there is this camera moving around. It's like you're uh, a spectator to a play, but you're allowed to come on stage and just move around the, the actors as they're performing. So I guess it's a play, but um, in a different way, which I think makes the uh, audience even more immersed into uh, what they're watching. Yeah, because you say you're allowed to watch some specific parts, but you're also directed to watch some specific parts, right? There is still that the camera is choosing what you're looking at. And I think Hitchcock uses that in Hope, that sometimes you can use what's happening off screen also, which theater can't really do, or at least not in the same way. So I do think there is still a, a very obvious difference between single-take, single-location films and plays. But there, there is also often this reaction of, it's not really cinema. Right? That, that's an interesting reaction, because you could also argue that it's hyper-cinema, in, in a way. But continuing the trail of uh, play adaptations into an adaptation of all the most famous plays of all time, Macbeth, we do see that Balatar, who's very famous for his long takes, but shocking, he only did one arguable single-take uh, film, which is this one, a Hungarian TV movie from 1983, which is only a little bit over an hour long. And it's composed in two takes, mind you, but one is the intro of about five minutes, the opening credits come on, and then it really is one consecutive single-take, all taking place in a castle as you move from room to room. We look down, we look up. And what's interesting in contrast to Rope, is that at least I don't interpret this to be intended to be in real time. We cover so much in the matter of an hour of the play. We move from large scenes to feasts, to night, to battles, all through this short space. And it's so, in a little way, it's rushed. It's 
relatively minimalistic in some way. In other ways, it, it's uh, quite massive because you, you run into these uh, large set pieces that really surprise you. And I think this is also a, a really good point of what was mentioned earlier, that it's different from a play because you can do different things. Like when you go from a room where someone is alone into a setting that's a you know large party in a matter of a second or two seconds. That's something you can't do in a play. They're right there the, the entire time. It's just that the camera isn't showing them. So I, I, I think th these kinds of techniques are really interesting uh, to observe and experience. And I think uh, Tar really brought something different to Macbeth. Yeah, so this one is really blowing the line even more between cinema and theatre. It feels at times like film theatre, but obviously it's, it's not in the way that we move around the sets. And there are, there's specifically a shot where Lady Macbeth is looking upon a murder and we look at it with her, essentially using the, the depth of field, right? Which is something you couldn't do in, in theater. That's a great moment. Generally, I do think the single take hurts a bit of the narrative because it has to be abridged so much, presumably because of the logistical issues. And I think if you saw this version of Macbeth without being familiar with the story, you would have a really hard time really getting invested into it because everything moves so quickly. And major characters like Banco are barely get times to really get introduced. I, I do think it works. Generally, it has this very eerie uh, feeling, which is very appropriate to Macbeth. And there are some great moments. The one I mentioned earlier, and when you have the, the mists coming into it uh, for the battle near the end, that really has this kind of um, universal feeling. The way it compresses time gives this story, this fable aspect, right? This is not really a story. It's a fable about humanity in general. It's not just about these characters. I, I think I think there's something there. It doesn't work as well as it could maybe, but I do think it's an interesting experiment. And it certainly made me think that I would have been interested in seeing Bellatar make more traditionally narrative films. I think he would be quite good at it. I mean, he's good at what he does anyway, but this is much more plot heavy and dialogue heavy than most of his films. Well, as someone who never read Macbeth and uh, didn't know anything about the um the actual story of Macbeth before watching the film. Oh. I have to agree, it was a bit messy at first. I uh, well, I, I got the general idea. I, I understood quickly what the, the film was about, but I'm pretty sure I missed uh, a few things about the, the story because of how short the movie actually is. That being said, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a fine film overall. I wanted to mention, well, the one-take aspect of the film. I agree with what has been said already about cinema being giving the opportunity to be able to move from one scene to another very quickly which is something that uh, cannot really be done when we're watching a play in, in real time i think it creates uh, an even more immersive feeling that uh, you, you're there actually there in the castle with all the characters something i was also trying to figure out was if there were any cuts in the one hour uh, film because i couldn't really spot any i guess i could spot one or two occasions where he could have um, cut the uh, the action but I, I couldn't find for certain any any point where i knew for sure it was a, it would have been cut there so i don't know if um, if it's really uh, a film that has been made completely in one take or if it's just the, the illusion i don't know if you guys have any information about that 
Well, I, I do. I did look it up, and from what the information is actually available, what people are saying, that obviously people could lie. It, it was indeed one real single take, which okay. which is very impressive, especially for a time and the fact that it's on TV. I mean, this, this was essentially, barring the intro, this was essentially the first real one take film in a way. Like, unless you want to talk about something like. Andy Warhol film, yes. <laughs> Empire. <laughs> Unless you want to talk about Empire by Andy Warhol. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised no one uh, watched it for this uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, at some point I will watch it. We bring Empire up so many times. It's almost like an in-joke at this point. I think it exists solely to be mentioned in this context. I don't think it exists to be watched. Yes, that's, that's the only reason. Well, that, that's kind of the reason it existed to begin with, because it was, you know, an installation piece. You weren't meant to see all of it. We were supposed to spot it and talk about it. So we're talking about it. We're, we, we have essentially seen it. <laughs> can we check it on check movies? Then? <laughs> yes, we can. We can. We have done the main cultural aspect of this. But to get uh, back to Macbeth, I think I completely agree. Just because all of us actually saw this film yesterday, which is why it's so fresh in our minds. And I hadn't seen it in probably six plus years. And it did go down a little bit in my estimation. I think that the first time I was marveling over just how it was done. At, at that point, there weren't really that many single-take films at all. I mean, that was long before Victoria. That was long before uh, 1917, Utøya, etc. Like, essentially, it was just this in Russian art that was uh, hanging around as any kind of notice. So I think I just really dug into just how impressive it was done that way. But this time, I agree with you, it's really abridged. There's some elements in that that works really well. Like the way the ending works, for instance. I'm not going to say what it does, but essentially it's just so fast. You have the battle and then the conclusion. And, and this just comes together with suddenly these musicians come in in front of the fighting and the smoke and it ties over into how the film ends. It's composed really well. It's shot really well. And it has this kind of ultra sword style that is almost reminiscent of Robert Bresson. It has so many good qualities in that way, but yes, it just feels really, really, really rushed. Yeah, you talk about the, the musicians. We actually see them earlier in the film. They are used to kind of smooth over some transitions. I think maybe the roughest transition, narratively, where they are used is one where very early on where Macbeth and Lady Macbeth go, basically they go have sex, they go have a son, and you have, they enter the room. And so to transition into the other scene, you have the musicians which are coming right in front of the screen and singing something. It's, it's kind of funny to see how Bellatar is problem solving in this way. Also the way he uses close-ups, right? He has his actors, especially the guy playing Macbeth, of course, get right into the camera. And so that you're just looking at him, you're not seeing anything going around and also they're moving. Yes, exactly. And so that really helps moving from one scene to the other. And there's, there's one moment I really liked, which is where the invisible knife, right, moment. He's talking about the knife and he's holding nothing. And then his hand goes a bit off screen. And then when it comes back, he has the knife in hand. That's just a good moment. It's kind of a Hitchcockian moment. It's kind of a wink again. <laughs> Whether or not it's intentional is just what you have to do in this situation. But I think it worked quite well. And Macbeth is probably one of the best plays to do that with, aside from the length, because it has this very surreal feeling. So compressing time in this way maybe works better for it than for others. Yeah, I agree with that. It really heightens the surrealism. By the way, the actor playing Macbeth is, uh, and I'm going to butcher it, is Georgi Chahalmi, which uh, did so many great uh, Hungarian films as well, especially with Fabri. So it was great 
seeing him here. And I think it's really interesting what you brought up earlier with just these close-ups, because that's a large part of this film. There's just so many close-ups. And that's also how cinema and just the art of how we move the camera work in, because many of these scenes really are just two characters or one character just close together, the camera right on them. And that allows them to essentially obscure anything else that's in that room to just instantly move into another scene right away because the other actors for the next scene is right in that room and then it moves over again and there's more actors in that same room ready to do something else. And and I think that's just one of the things that for any limitations and flaws the film might have was done really well. And it's an interesting technique to think about because I don't really think I've seen that in any of the other single take films we'll be talking about today. And as we talked about, I think we've gone through most of what we can say about Macbeth now. But for a long time, like I said, there really weren't that many single-take films. There was Rope, which was in several takes, but cut together to make the appearance of a single take. You had Macbeth, which was in two takes, that at least had that one almost hour-long consecutive take. And then, in 2002, was the film, again, barring Empire and, and a few other films that didn't get much notice, the very first film to really delve into the single-take aesthetics and really be shot in one single take, and even more impressively, shot over one single day. They had to run through it a few times, of course, but it really was shot in one day, and that is Alexander Sukhodov's Russian Ark, which is a bit of a sensory overload of... Russian history is set in the palace of the old Tsars, entering in a mixture of the actual museum, discussion, past, history, as just everything blends together in this unique, visceral, bizarre, colorful, massive experience. And I'm going to stop talking now and let you guys take over, but I rewatched Russian Ark this week as well. I've never loved a Shukra film before. This film did not quite work for me the first time, but this time I was really absorbed into it. It won me over, finally. And I know that (laughs) you guys might have a much closer tie to Sukhorov, so just uh, jump into it, guys. I don't think I'm particularly a Sukhorov fan. You've probably seen a lot more than me. (laughs) But I do like Russian Ark. I think it really gets into what we just talked about with Macbeth, with that dilution of time, right? And so in this case, Sukhorov is making a film essentially about history, or basically 18th to early 20th century Russia. But he, by compressing it all, he's really making a point about how this is one thing, how this whole era is all comprised of one thing, that the Hermitage, the, the museum in which this is all filmed, really encompasses this. It's really interesting to look at how this film is in relation to the museum, because one criticism you could make of it is that it kind of feels like an advertisement to come to the Hermitage, right? <laughs> come to the Hermitage, it's great. Uh, <laughs> that was my first thought too. <laughs> I, I watched it actually in a public library, this film. I remember it quite well. And I think maybe that emphasized this feeling of kind of vegetable filmmaking, if that makes sense, right? It's uh, eat your vegetables. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of fascinating the way Sokorov uses this device, the, the single take device to dilute time. And one of the other interesting aspects, I think, is the, the narrator. The camera is kind of you in Russian art. That's what gives this the advertisement for a museum feeling. It feels like you are walking through the museum and walking into these various scenes from history, and you have a guide, essentially. 
the use of this guide, I think it's, it's quite interesting in the way that this single take idea sets it apart from quote unquote normal cinema. You would not do this in this way without this technique. You would not have this narrator coming along and commenting. Again, because it is a film about history, you need to have a historian there because you show how the narrative shapes what we think of history. But I guess I don't have a specific point. I just think it's, it's a very interesting film. It's not one I love because I don't like museums. <laughs> I don't really enjoy spending time in them, despite loving history. But I do think it, it manages what it wants to do quite well. Regarding the guide and advertisement aspect, I think it's also helped by the fact that this is a, the first film we, we mentioned that actually breaks the fourth wall. And there's actually someone talking to the camera compared to Rope or Macbeth, where it's just a play taking place and uh, the camera is just uh, there to film what's going on and uh, the camera is not supposed to be you. Regarding Russian Ark, it's a film I sadly haven't had time to rewatch this week. I really, really loved it when I first saw it a few years back. Not really for the one-take aspect, which I, which I think is nice, but I was really impressed with all the work that they did on the visual aspect to, to take us through a, a part of Russian history like this on such a beautiful place filled with so many figurants and pretty much being able to tell us a story of well, a few centuries in just uh, 90 minutes, I think. And this way was, I think, very, a very impressive thing to do, especially once again filmed in such a, a beautiful place. The one-take aspect might add a little bit the impression that we're actually going through time with the film we're watching, because the, the first two films we talked about were shot in real time. The action is actually taking place just as the camera is following. What we're watching in Rope and Macbeth is taking place in real time. Whether and in Russian arc, well, what we're watching could be seen as happening in real time, but I don't think that's really the point. I think the point is to take us through the museum and Russian history at the same time. What the film wants to achieve is a bit different between the first two films we mentioned that are plays and the third one, which could be seen as a yeah, advertisement for the museum, as you say, Mathieu. But uh, yeah, honestly, if all advertisement could be like that, that would be that would be perfect. So I'm, I'm not complaining at all. <laughs> it's worth noting that the museum director was literally playing himself in the film as found several other top people thinking they were themselves, either talking to the characters in the specific museum scenes, showing them things, explaining things. So it does really have that advertising effect, I guess, in a way. But for, for me, the film and the single take, what it does is that it bombards you with shocking and surprising images because you know you can go through a corridor of an actual museum and suddenly you slip through time and you're just in the middle of real events, seeing them at this large, massive scope as you're being immersed in them. And it's almost like you have to be glued to the screen at all times because suddenly they open a door, suddenly they turn around and something else is happening. It's really impressive. I just want to get back just a, a second for Macbeth. I don't agree that it's real time because the events in Macbeth particularly take place over a large period of time, right? Uh, Macbeth becomes king and you have the, the son who goes away and then comes back with an army. I mean, it feels like real time, obviously, because of the single take, but I, I don't think it's, it's a real time film. But in no film uses this notion of unbroken time 
more obviously than, than Russian arc. Editing is cutting time and kind of what Sokolov accomplishes with Russian arc is to do that without editing. There's certainly something magical about that. Yes. I definitely remember, especially the scene where we enter the revolution era and where basically we enter a room that's destroyed. It's during the war and you have snow going in, etc. That's such a strong visual moment. It's very strong emotionally also because it comes uh, towards the end of the film after we've seen all of this luscious and luxurious history playing out. I do think it's, it's something very special that Sokolov does with this film. That really hasn't been done since. The other films we'll talk about don't really go for that dilution of time aspect as much. Well, I think it's a, a unique way of doing it too. And it's, it's really interesting to compare this to Macbeth because in Macbeth, like, like you said, time is just abridged. It's just compressed so much that you barely notice it's passing. And here it's really in real time in a way because you have these two central characters. The camera follows, or rather, one character is a point of view and the other character is uh, walking in front, dancing around, interacting, and essentially just having these uh, sandy or bizarre conversations with each other, playing with history, discussing what's going on. But uh, around them, time is changing, and it's done in two such completely different ways. I'm also really interested in just how much fun Sokra was clearly having with this, like how borderline surreal, how bizarre. You know, like you said, this character uh, of the stranger is a real character in a way, but it's also the playing around with who this person is, which country he's from. Uh, at several points, simply called the same Europe as it is a stand-in for all European interest in, in Russia, almost. It's just interesting just how much fun, how much play, and how many other ideas are being brought into this film. To that point, he's French. He's an actual historical French character, but he represents... Western Europe in general, because the Hermitage was built in St. Petersburg and, and the whole place is about Russia as part of Europe. That, that whole period of history, really, is Russia's relationship with Western Europe and wanting to be more like Western Europe or not. It's kind of the central dynamic of this period of Russian history, and it's what's central in the film as well. I think that's also why we have this character and why he's never really named and as you say, they kind of stay vague about him just being Western European because that's what matters. It doesn't matter that he is specifically French. That's a really interesting and poetic point as well. Like, there's just clearly so much thought playing into this. And one of the things that also should be mentioned, which I guess isn't obvious unless you either read the trivia or you're really familiar with the Russian history, but that spectacular ball scene that is the final, um, I guess you call it climax of the film, the final long set piece, that was set in the exact same hall as the last ball in Tsarist Russia was ever held. So it essentially covers all of you know, Tsarist history, the way it plays with history in this way. It's just uh, absolutely incredible. It's clear that there's so much talk went into it. Yeah, it definitely has this last day of the Empire film. And, and again, this film was actually shot in one single day. They only closed for one day. They ran through it in a few different takes, but really just one day, properly prepare, set everything up, you know, coordinate. It's so many extras, which uh, Sokro does not even want to say. I mean, there's a reason why this film is remembered the way it is. And perhaps also the reason why there are a couple of smaller films that we're not mentioning, like Time Code, but there's such a long gap before the next major, major one-take film, which, in my opinion, is not really a one-take film. It's fake, and it's more clearly fake, but it's Birdman, the massive, you know, multi-academy award-winning uh, film. 
by uh, Inaritu. Bringing over the colossal cast, uh, incredible central performance by Michael Keaton, uh, essentially reigniting his career. And it's, it, it's so visually stunning, it's so visually playful. But uh, would you classify this as a single take film? I mean, it literally isn't, but it certainly belongs in the conversation because stylistically, that's what it appears as, right? Even though people who are much better at this than me can tell you where all the cuts are, I don't particularly see the cuts. I just know intellectually that it's not one take and that it would be basically impossible given the fantasy aspects of the film. But yeah, it feels like a one take film. So it's, it's not, but it belongs in this conversation, I would argue. I'm personally not a big fan of Birdman, but the reasons I don't like the film have to do with the writing and the characters, not with the um, directing. I think the one-take aspect works very well, actually, for the film. It is a film about theater, which, again, matters here. It, and it has this immersive aspect, but this time in making us identify with the main character, right? And with his kind of psyche that is kind of being toyed with by the film and having this one take means that we are there with him all the time and we can maybe empathize more with him and with the way he is kind of losing his mind. Not a film I love, but I think technically it works. I think the single take does do what the film wants it to do. Yeah, I would agree Birdman is definitely a film we can mention because it's supposed to look like a one take film. I have to say I didn't remember it as a one take film at all. Even though I remember that there were some long shots, I just didn't remember it was one long take. I liked the film when I saw it. I thought the long shot aspect worked quite well. It really allowed us to follow him through his uh, journey, let's say. The fact also that the movie is centered around theaters is probably something that has to do with the fact that it's also in one take. Yeah, personally, I, I actually loved Birdman. I just I love the craft of it, which was what really absorbed me. And, and I love performances. I, I just love the amount of surrealism and play in such a you know, massive mainstream film. I thought it was uh, quite spectacular, but I, I didn't rewatch it for this episode. And the reason for that is also because I don't really consider it a single-take film. So, like, effects aside, I mean, this is, to me, in the same category as, you know, Gaspar Noe's film which I know we looked up in the research for this, and you know, we saw, for instance, Irreversible were on lists of single-take films. So that list is literally in reverse chronological order. And the only reason why it's on to the list is because it has these digital effect transitions where it can really be moving up and going into something again. And that's the same with the Enter the Void, where the camera essentially plays with effects and changes between the scenes. And that, to me, works really well. I love the craft of that. I love the way that makes a film feel. But that, to me, is not you know, a single-take film. It creates a very different experience, essentially. So I, I just can't think of them exact same way, even though I'm very happy Burman was made the way it was. It was you know, a spectacular experience. But I think it's just a very different category of uh, film. Same with the Gaspar Noe films. See, maybe I'm misremembering uh, Irreversible, but I don't remember it all appearing as one take. I, I do think it's different from Birdman. Maybe I'm misremembering, because I do, I do remember some of the transitions you mentioned, but I don't think, I think there are also more traditional cuts in its under. Because I, I do think Birdman, because it feels like one take, to me it's different than Gaspar Noe's film, which are just a lot of long takes. Uh, I think it's the fact that Irreversible is uh, in reverse, let's say, which is oh, yeah. why we 
probably why we remember uh, so many cuts. But I think that um, if you don't count the transitions, I, I think the, the scenes are all shot in one take, actually. If you take if you take the film and put it in the right order, I think you would have a one. You would probably have a one take film. I think. Really. If you take okay. away the transitions, I really? think. I think. I, I actually know this is interesting because I actually know that Casper now recut the film last year. To yeah, yeah, you mentioned that. Too. In the order, I didn't. I haven't seen that version, but that would be interesting. Now, while since I saw it as well, I always just uh, thought that it was the scenes shot as one takes, and then it just use digital effects to kind of just morph out and into the next scene without really doing a traditional cut. But yeah, that, that's, that's possible. That's interesting. The idea of recutting irreversibly in the other way around seems profoundly stupid to me. Yes. <laughs> I've read Gaspar Noé's reasoning for it and it still sounds stupid. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think the same was done with, uh, I think the same was done with uh, Memento, the film by Nolan. Which is also pretty Oh, dumb. wow, no. I would argue. <laughs> I, okay, that's that's awful. I mean, it's one thing recutting Arrested Development, but when you recut Memento, wow! <laughs> yeah, you're you're taking you're pretty much taking away the only thing good about the movie. So, <laughs> I guess we have to talk about that more uh, one day because yeah. I'm a big fan. But <laughs> oh, okay, all right. <laughs> we we can we can do that definitely. But to the transition away from the fakes, if you will, the really good fakes. There was then one other major release, this time from Germany. It's called Victoria. It was made by essentially a completely unknown director named uh, Sebastian Schipper, which I haven't really heard that much from since. I know we made one movie, but it didn't go that well from what I hear. It is incredible. It's beautiful. It's actually one of my very favorite films from 2015, probably running as a D favorite film of mine from 2015, because it takes a kind of far-fetched plot where a girl gets swept up with uh, random men on the street and goes on essentially this crime wave with them in a way. It turns into a heist film, from a hangout film to a heist film. And it has these terms that are not necessarily overly believable, but it just sucks you in and it becomes believable because it's just this one single take. And I think the way it works, where you just follow her on the street, you see these men behind her kind of hollering at her, you get scared, you get alarmed, you feel the tension, you just move into their conversations, the flow, the vibe of them just walking together, doing things together, it numbs you out, it sucks you into that night, and it's just, it's not something I had experienced before, it goes a very different direction from Russian art, in a way this is an action film, or at least you know, a proper intense thriller. It, it goes through car chases. It does essentially anything you would imagine, but it is one single take and the effect is incredible. Yeah, as I mentioned, Victoria was the first film I saw in one take and I was extremely impressed by it. It was also around the time I really got into film, so relatively early on. And yeah, I absolutely loved it. It's still a favorite of mine. You mentioned the believability or, or lack thereof of some of the plot developments. And I do think it's kind of an interesting aspect of the one take thing is it either really smooths that over because you are in there with them. For me, because I was in there in the action, the lack of believability didn't bother me. It, it, it kind of smoothed over. It felt real because I was in it. But I think it can have the reverse effect. I think it can really take you out of the film and we'll talk about 
a film later where it did this for me. Ooh. But yeah, I think in the case of Victoria, the this transition from this kind of romantic drama, kind of a before sunrise type of thing. Yes, it's true. Into a thriller really works, I think, because of the of the single take for me. And again, I think it's it's all or nothing. Yeah, I, I, I guess. And you're completely right. I mean, you have slower scenes. You have this romance building up and you get these extremely varied scenes where you have them, you know, in, in the cafeteria where she, where she works, essentially the atmosphere there. You have those hangout scenes on the roof and in the apartment that are spectacular. You have the street scenes. And then you actually have a literal heist, you have car chases, you have shootouts, you have just so much intense variety. They had four different sessions, they went with the third one. It, it, it still boggles my mind, they manage this variety, I mean, they even go clubbing, like they go into this massive club and they dance with so many extras around them. And it, it's just so absorbing. It, it just, I can't stop being impressed by this film. Yeah, like Russian arc, they kind of complicate their, their own life to show how difficult it is, uh, kind of. I mean, I think the clubbing thing is kind of showing off. <laughs> but it, it works quite well in the story. Uh, also, there's one, one little thing that I, I read about it, is that at one point, there's just one point in the film where the lead actress is not on screen. It's like two minutes. And apparently she went to vomit in the toilet or something. <laughs> <laughs> because it was such an intense thing and it was not particularly scripted. Wow. Anyway, a small detail. And another thing I want to add, uh, mentioned the director, Sebastian Schipper. Apparently he does have a film Absolute Giganten from 1999, which is relatively well reviewed. I haven't seen it, but he had done something before. I claim you haven't seen that one, correct? Yeah, I haven't seen it, but uh, I guess I would have to, to see it because oh, you, you guys are... Yeah, because apparently you guys, uh, you guys liked it, especially you, Chris. You managed to sell it quite well, so yeah, I'll have to check it out one of these days. I'm looking up Shipper, and yes, he had actually done three films before. I would love to see something else from him, but uh, at least in this film, it's incredible, just the amount of transitions he manages to do. Uh, and sp comparing it to Russian Ark, I mean, Russian Ark was in one museum. This one literally spans, you know, a city. I mean, it's probably a small area, but still, it feels like you're out one night in Berlin. I mean, it yeah. really feels like that. And you go to many different places. And uh, I, I do want to say the lead performance by Laia Costa, she hasn't done that much since, I don't, not that I'm aware of, but she was great in this film. Really anchored the film, which is important because we basically all the time with her. And I think that's a nice tie-over to the next film as well, which I guess takes place in a smaller location, but also feels incredibly intense and, and, and a bit more personal for me as well, which is Utaya, 22nd July, which is the story of the terrorist attack and massacre in Norway back in 2011. It's the most disturbing, most extreme attack in Norway since World War II. And it, it shook the country to its core. I think everyone knew at least someone affected by the massacre. Because if there's so many people involved in one way or another. This is a film that takes the single take shot in a different direction. Because it's depicting something that was real. It's a fictional story. But it was in conversation with the survivors. It's taking real elements from the story. It feels just like the stories we heard after the massacre. And the whole idea of the film, which is why it's incredible, why it could almost be imaginable to be shot any other way, is that it literally takes place in this exact same time as the massacre happened. So it goes over the 72 minutes, essentially, or a little bit longer, because it starts before the shooting starts. But essentially just lets you be there the entire time. You feel like you're there. You feel the trauma of the characters. And before I let you guys speak as well, I think 
the reason why I didn't see uh, Paul Greengrass's July 22nd, which is film release, I believe, the same year and falls the terrorist, because that would be even more raw. But this film, it doesn't show the terrorist at all. There's perhaps one shot which you could make out to be him. What we actually follow is we follow their faces. We follow the teenagers and children as they're hiding, running. We just stay from their perspective the entire time, even as you know some of them die. We see only see their perspective. We see the hurt and the pain and the terror of the event rather than actually glorifying, giving any notice to the terrorist himself. So I think that's just a really beautiful touch. It's a really powerful touch and you really feel that, that uh, you're there. And it's just uh, probably one of the most powerful experiences I've had cinematically uh, in a long time. But that's also because of just how close it feels. Because it, unless it's been mentioned before, I, I am the region. I, I knew at least one person who was there. And it's, it's quite still a quite raw experience. Yeah, it is a very, very intense film for very intense subject matter. It really uses this uh, single take ID to to put you into someone's skin, right? It's to go, what if you were there when this was happening? And it succeeds. I think it's it's almost traumatic to watch it. It's so intense and so hard to watch at times. You have to kind of cling to the fact that I didn't know this for sure when I watched it, but I assumed those were fictional characters, even though obviously the situation is quite real. You do see actually uh, Breivik, the, the killer, a few times. Uh, but always from a distance. He's kind of treated like a um, horror movie monster in some sense. Yes, exactly. Though I think it's also a question of whether it's, it is him or someone else, because you kind of just see the shadow of someone, something you don't know. So there's it, it always that's this question of if it is him or not as well. So it really feels like it's him. I think it's two times we see him because he's walking very calmly and yeah. no one else is calm in this whole thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. And there's also a time, a point where the film uses sound design very well, where she's hiding in a tent mm -hmm. and we just hear very quiet steps. It's unclear whether yes. or not it's him at, at that point. So yeah, I think it's a film that really succeeds in what it's doing completely. There is something a little obscene about it. I don't know if it's the right word, but it's very uncomfortable to watch. It's supposed oh, to yes. be, but yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what to make of it. It, it's hard to process in some sense. Obviously, mm -hmm. I don't have the, the closeness you have, Chris, to, to those events. But uh, needless to say, they were similar, not quite similar, but still terrorist attacks in France in the past few years. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about the claim, but similarly, you know people who were kind of connected to those events. And I don't know if I would like to see that for those events, right? No, exactly. It's just... There's something that feels wrong about it, but at the same time, I, I can't fault the film for, again, it, it does exactly what it sets out to do. And it uses the, the one-take technique for this purpose extremely well. I think it's extremely effective. No, I agree completely. And like I said, it really just feels like this horrifying creature in the distance. And uh, the way that it just really focuses in on these people, how these uh, survivors, and, and obviously some of them die, their experience and only their experience of the event. I think that's why it was received so well in Norway and why it didn't feel that macabre, to me at least, because it's really respectful to the survivors and, and the casualties. And it was made in conversation with them as well. And it walks such a fine line on doing that. And, and just one more point, 
in many films, like if you watch a horror film, and it does to a ex slight extent feel a bit like a horror film because it's just so horrifying. There's this thrill, right? If, if you watch many horror films, there's this thrill, when will this person die? Will this person die? Oh my God, there's bullets there. Something's going to happen. And I think in this film, that's not there. You don't want the killer to come. I think that's probably one of the things that the film managed to do so well. It has this long, quiet moment where they're just hiding maybe 10 or even 15, 20 minutes in the same spot, just laying down, whispering, the camera going into the rocks, showing their faces. And you don't want the killer to come, even though it's such long, long set pieces with limited talking. You don't want anything to break that up because it's so tense. And I think the way it managed to do that, the way it never inv invited any kind of glee at the violence or any kind of excitement from the violence, I think that's so rarely done. It makes the film even more powerful. Yeah, I agree with you that, that you definitely don't want things to happen to the characters on screen. I think especially the way the film uses the sound of the shots that are constant. It feels like a traumatic event. It feels like you're having a traumatic experience when watching it, which whether or not that's something you want to, to do is, is, is up to you, I suppose. I do think there is something in the film about the difficulty of inaction. I think that's right away in, in the start of the film, because these people are they're confronted with this thing, and you see how difficult it is to hide, to, to just do what is probably the most conducive to surviving, which is nothing. There are several scenes in this. I mean, the main character has, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, she has a sister, and she's mostly motivated in the film by finding her sister, who's on the island. And... That makes her an active character, that kind of forces her into being active. But you also have a bunch of characters around her. You kind of, at some point, resent them for doing nothing, while also thinking, obviously, you do nothing. That's the only thing you can do. I don't know. It's, it's, very, it's a very interesting film. I, I don't think I have fully processed it yet. I watched it two days ago. It's, it's a unique film, I would say. I do think there's a decision right near the end of the film with, I can't speak in detail, but if you've seen the film, you might know what I mean. It, it did make me feel a little queasy, is what I would say. I think that's, uh, that's the experience a lot of people uh, go away with as well. I think it just speaks to the power it has in, in a way, I guess. I mean, we can talk, we could talk about various flaws, various things that weren't done necessarily that well as well. I'm sure there's things to pick, pick at, but I think just as an experience, it is unique and, all, and almost unparalleled in just how unnerving it is and, and also how just how it uses like you said in action and I never felt contempt for the characters doing nothing I wanted them to do nothing but <laughs> but uh, I can see that 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 view as well yeah I, I just it's a contradictory feeling mm. and uh, and yeah I think just cinematically as well if you can just disconnect from the actual emotions a bit I think it's really interesting because I don't think I've seen it done before the way of keeping tension and horror for such a long time with inaction. Like when you have people hiding for say 10 minutes plus just hiding and still managing to keep that tension. I think that's something that I guess was amplified by the single take, by the way it's it shot, by the emotions and the fact that it worked when it just cannot think of that working in that way in this kind of, it's a little bit wrong to call it mainstream, but I mean, it was a big film in Norway and it's just, I can't think of any other bigger films that would do that manage to maintain suspense that way. Well, I guess if we want to transition into another film that also takes us into an extremely violent and difficult mm -hmm. situation and uses this technique, I guess we can talk about 1917. 
and yeah that's the, like going into the terror of uh world war one and all that that all that killing almost feels like a bit of a lighter topic almost so uh thanks for, <laughs> so thanks for that uh transition matthew and uh 1917 is not technically a single-take film. It's a two-take film. It has a very obvious break, but it also switches the time of day. But with that exception, it does belong in this conversation. And it is also arguably the very biggest film to ever use this technique. And, and the one that really pushed shooting things in one single take into, you know, the ultimate main, like mainstream conversation because essentially everyone has seen it. People were seeing it at IMAX. It was such a massive experience around the world. And I'm assuming this is the film you were hinting at earlier that didn't quite succeed in some of the real-time things <laughs> you were talking about. And, and I'll agree with that. But from a craft perspective, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really strong experience with some great effects uh, from this, the single takes. But maybe we can jump to some of the flaws before we uh, turn this uh, episode into a complete falling exercise. Okay, so 1917, I only saw it yesterday. I didn't have the chance to uh, see it in, uh, in theater. Ooh. I quite liked it. It's obviously not a one-take uh, one film because it has a very clear shot in the middle, as you mentioned, Chris. I thought the idea of following these two soldiers to uh, deliver a message to another battalion through the battlefield was a quite a good idea to do it in one shot. It really feels like you're, uh, you're with them, accompanying them throughout their, uh, their quest. I, I think someone mentioned in the comments of the, um, the iCheck movie uh, page that it uh, reminded them of uh, some kind of uh, video game because uh, you, have, you have like this quest that you have to do and uh, you do it through the film in, uh, in real time. Uh, I can see where it's come from, even though I didn't uh, thought about it at all when, when I was watching the film. I, I think also the first and the second part are quite different in, uh, in tone. I think the second part is much more uh, violent, let's say, and uh, the pace is much faster, which was a nice uh, change of pace, even though I like both parts equally. Maybe I, I prefer the first one a little bit better. As for the one-shot technique, as I said, I think it worked quite well here. It gives um, the opportunity to do some great shots, like at the beginning when we're following them in the trenches. It actually reminded me of uh, the Kubrick film Path of Glory in the first scene as well, when uh, Kirk Douglas is also going through the, the trenches. I think filming it in one shot as well, in a way, give it a more uh, tense feeling because you're really there with everything that's happening and you can really see anything that's going on because there aren't that many uh, close-up on their face or on themselves. There are lots of huge panorama of what's going on around them, which I think was uh, nice because it allows us to see even more what's going on. So I think it's a nice film, not a film specifically about war or World War One, but um, a film about two young soldiers caught up in this war that have to do this kind of quest in this film, and uh, you just know that after this is done, they will be sent back to the battlefield to risk their lives. So it's kind of like a parallel in their horrible uh, trenches life. Yeah, so as Chris alluded to, I'm, I'm not a big fan of 1917. What you brought up, Clem, with the video game, is a discussion that was very prevalent around this film, which makes sense with the single take thing, especially when you have a POV. Mm -hmm. We didn't talk about it for Russian Ark, but when we say it's kind of like visiting a museum, you could also say it's kind of like a video game taking place in a museum. 
1917, in the end, it's not so much of a, the video game I would compare it to. I would more say it's like a World War One theme park. Uh, and yes, <laughs> oh. I, do, I do mean that pejoratively. <laughs> uh, I don't know. This is maybe kind of unrelated, but there's a very famous quote from Jacques Rivette in Les Cahiers du Cinéma talking about traveling shots, where he said, traveling shots are a question of morality. And mm. there's something similar to me that plays out in both this film and Utoya and the use of single take. I don't want to condemn them. I'm not an authority to do so, certainly. But because of the intensity, mm. because you are placed with them, there is something uncomfortable to me morally about what's going on in these films, but much more in 1917, actually. I think, mm. I think Utoya, because of its focus, works better. It's also maybe the writing. I think the reason people compared it to a video game is also because I think the writing, especially in the first parts, the conversations between the two, the two soldiers, they're maybe not super well written, I would argue. And maybe that's also why people think of video games, which are <laughs> generally don't have the greatest screenwriters. No, it depends on the video mm-hmm. game. But... And yeah, I don't know. I think 1917 is, is remarkable in, in terms of technique, right? Oh, yes. Roger Dickens won the Oscar for it. It looks amazing, especially in the second half, those night scenes with the, the turn on fire. There's really nothing to say about that. It's just amazing in terms of visual storytelling. I, I don't know what it is about this technique. It makes me feel uncomfortable when we are in situations like this, which are not only tragic, but also real, even though these are fictional characters. And yeah, specifically, this film felt like, yeah, the theme back to me. It felt like, hey, visit World War I. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought with that word. Well, I think it's a very different film from the usual war films that we see. We, we don't see like their day-to-day life in the trenches. We don't see them charging uh, the other army. So um, I, I understand what you mean by the theme park. It seems like we're just taking a walk through what's going on and uh, not really seeing any actions apart from uh, a scene where uh, planes are uh, fighting and towards the end where we see a little bit of English soldiers coming out of the trenches to charge. I think that the life conditions were worse than what we see. So I understand what you mean by theme, theme park. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a film that was made to be representative of the war and World War One. just a story taking place uh, over uh, about 24 hours in what was a four-year conflict. I did look it up. Roger Deakins indeed win uh, Best Achievement in Cinematography. And it also won Best Achievement in Visual Effects and Best Achievement in Sound Mixing. And those were the only three wins. But I, I would also say those are all well-deserved. It looks spectacular, even more so than Victoria in a way. This is done on a much larger scale. It essentially takes in the extras from Russian Ark and the idea of just moving all throughout a massive area from Victoria and merges them together. And it's shot even more professional, which is to say it just done the proper studio way it's utterly incredible in this how beautiful some of these shots etc is but from the very beginning i had that video game feeling i never thought theme park but this idea of the video game where you know you kind of had the early missions where you know you're walking places you're discovering things there's some uh, caves to go in like it feels a lot like so many different war games you know you might have played and that was a slight negative. On the flip side, though, regardless of what you want to say about the dialogue, I actually thought the early portions of the film, where you really just do have these two characters on their own, walking through the trenches and hiding and 
being harmed in some ways, cutting themselves on barbed wires, etc. It feels really immersive. I think as a film building tension, as just this immersive journey, following the characters works incredibly well. I think that's one of the main powers of the single take, that you can really just be there with them. Everything is given a little bit extra gravitas. But then there's some transitions that are a bit too unbelievable. Like when suddenly they run into a bunch of soldiers. There's so many things that has to happen for this to really work in so many big events. And at some point it doesn't work as well as, say, Victoria. I think it was with Victoria that I said uh, the long take thing was kind of all or nothing in terms of immersion. And mm-hmm. I was thinking of those scenes in, in 1917 where they're, they're talking in the early parts. And maybe it's not the writing, maybe it's just something, it really broke the immersion for me, something there didn't click for me. And I think, yeah, with this technique, because it is so involving, it's again, all or nothing. And maybe the film kind of lost me there and couldn't bring me back, even though I could appreciate the technical aspects of it and the beauty of some of the shots. But yeah, I I guess I think it lost me emotionally at that point. and, And that's why I'm not a fan. I agree that the story is not uh, particularly incredible or uh, something that has never been done before. It has a few uh, war film cliché oh, yeah. throughout, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think the, the story is necessarily the most important part of the film. At least in my eye, I just saw it as uh, two guys having a break, let's say, <laughs> from their life, uh, well, their soldier life, to just have an, another mission uh, delivered to to them. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it's uh, supposed to be necessarily something that represents what uh, day-to-day life in, uh, in war uh, is, but just this quest uh, type of film. And I think it mainly exists to give you that immersive experience and to be able to have that one or other two single takes. I think that's really the main thing about the film. As And as someone who's really drawn to the technical elements of film, that really worked for me. Overstepping poor writing and cliches, I think that's why I really enjoyed 1917. I think probably that's why a lot of people enjoy 1917, because it is done so well. It is so impressive. I didn't manage to see it at the cinema. I would have loved to, but it is the way this film is made. That really is the standout here. And perhaps the performances, perhaps, you know, obviously there's all of the staging, etc., which, which all goes into how it was made again so i wouldn't credit the story with the success or, or the strength of the film but i do like the idea you put forward that it is all or nothing and that when there's no cuts when there's no variation there the entire time something can keep damaging the experience all the way through so that, that's definitely an interesting uh, take as well it's something we're considering for anyone trying to make a single take film now i do think actually this is the last one or the newest one that all of you guys have seen right yeah. yeah, absolutely. I saw one more on the recommendation of Tom, who unfortunately isn't here today, which is called The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open, which is, I guess, a bit of a poetic title, but it is a really powerful film. And I think it uses a single take in a very different way that we're used to as well, because it takes us into the aftermath of domestic abuse. You do get a bit of an introduction, you know, setting up the lives of two women, which is not done in a single take. It's kind of like, just like Macbeth, you have a little mini intro first, and then the title comes on screen, and then it's a single take. Essentially, that single take to start with one of those women standing there, you know, bloody in the rain with no shoes on her feet, as, as you know, her boyfriend is screaming from the other side of the you know, heavily traffic road. Uh, abuse, you have this horror element. 
these two women bump into each other for the first time and uh, the woman who arrives on the scene takes her away to safety. And, and it just starts this slow, brooding, very emotional look at that abuse, look at just what happens there, what are the thoughts that go through it. And it just feels so real. And, and probably in part because it was inspired by a real event in the co-director and co-star, probably going to butcher the name, but El Maya, Tailfeather's Life. It just feels like you are right there with these women as, you know, you have one of them, Ayla, being just this supportive, suggestive, cautious, unsure. She's just like kind of giving these little suggestions of, you know, shouldn't we call the police? Like, are you okay? And then you have the other woman, Rosie, who's just hurt, rude, crude, kind of lashing out, being abusive herself a bit. And you just kind of experience this relationship grow and just the way they deal with solving it, trying to find Rosie help being there in the room with them, being there as they drive somewhere else. I'm not going to tell you anywhere of where it goes, but it just feels like a powerful experience of real life. And it's kind of this story that you never really see before. And it, it's, again, shot in absolute real time. So it's just like, this event happened over 90 minutes. This is how it felt. This is the experiences of these women. It allows you to have these more quiet moments, but in a very different way than, say, Utea. 22nd July. It's just, it, it's really powerful. I would definitely recommend it. it. It's a Canadian film and an indigenous narrative as well. Both of the main actors are indigenous and it kind of delves into some of that as well. It's a beautiful film. It's a powerful film. Definitely something to be recommended. And as you guys haven't seen it, I won't ask you to comment, but I do think that over the last two or three years, we're seeing a bit of a emergence of these single takes films like there was an other relatively big one from norway called blind zone which i haven't seen yet which is also a single take and you kind of have this just over the last two three years you're getting two three big single take films and technology is getting there too now that it's possible to make more of these single takes films so what do you think the future of single take films are do you think there will be more of them and how do you think they'll develop I think we'll definitely see a lot more. As you mentioned, the technology is a big factor. First, digital filmmaking. I think Question Arc was made specifically because Sokorov went, now that we have digital cameras, we can do this much more easily. And in the case of 1917, I think they also used some new things in um, terms of visual effects. I do think these films show that you can do very big stuff right, with the right budget. And hopefully we will see more things like you described with The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open more indie films using this. I do think it's also kind of stylistically in vogue to do stuff like this. Uh, long takes in general are very fashionable, I suppose, in cinema right now. Just in the past 20 years, it seems that there have been lots more films with very long takes. And yeah, so I think we'll see more and hopefully more varied, just not thrillers. I mean, I think it's great for thrillers, but yeah, I'm very interested in seeing it used in other genres. Yeah, I agree with Mathieu. I'm pretty sure it's something that we will see more and more as time goes by. It's something that isn't that much developed even today, because as we said, that there are only two films that are really one tech film so far in 2021. Maybe we'll get more in the next years, but I'm pretty sure it's extremely hard to do. It requires a lot of budget, a lot of, well, it depends on the type of film you want to do, obviously. I assume it's a lot of work, a lot of preparation before shooting the film, and maybe not everyone can um, afford to have this uh, time of uh, preparation. I hope we see more and maybe try to have some uh, other genre, as, uh, as Matthew mentioned, like not only like thrillers or uh, 
war films, but maybe try to go for something completely different. Maybe, I don't know, comedy or romance or Western or I don't know. Or maybe or horror film could be, could be good. Yeah, you mentioned two of them being real, uh, yeah, Victoria and Russian Ark. But actually, Chris, is, isn't Utoya also really one take? It felt that way to me, but I guess I don't know. The entire film technically is in a single take, but it's a bit like The Body Remembers when it broke open, in that it has an intro, so with several cuts. It has these shots from the Capitol, where there was a bomb first, and it kind of shows the bomb going off, and then you go to the island, and then everything is a single take from there. Now, that, that first part could absolutely be technically been cut out, but I think that's also uh, an interesting part we didn't really discuss, which is that you have essentially two parts of the single take film. You have the ones that are specifically doing it for the artistic purpose of being solely one single take, which I guess Russian Ark is the main example of, but also Victoria. And then you have the films that are going for the effect of the single take, which could even include 1917, but also something like The Body Members when the world broke open, that there's a real point, there's a reason. Same with Utah, there's a real reason why you want that effect, but they're not necessarily inclined to artistically limit themselves off. It's more about the effect they create. It's good to have a single take film, but uh, I think it should be for the right reason let's say not only to just say hey look we made a one take film but also mm-hmm. to to have a reason let's say behind it yes and i'm not sure if there are others like the, like i mentioned there's one more norwegian film from 2018 called blindstone i'm not sure if that is complete single take or if there's an intro there as well there are other films that have existed that haven't gotten that much attention i've heard that time code has four single takes essentially shown on the screen at the same time or something I'm not sure exactly how that works. There's probably other smaller ones out there. It's an interesting distinction because we're kind of like just looking at the extreme, defini- most extreme definitions as well, just to make sure that it is truly, truly one single take in every single instance. Though I guess it's also the nature of the limitation. <laughs> and I hope that our podcast today wasn't too limited and it didn't, <laughs> didn't feel too singular and that we managed to talk you through the biggest single take films or almost single takes films in a good way join us on icmforum.com find the thread for this episode and tell us what you think the future of single take films will be if we actually left out some of your favorites and what your stands are on any of the films we mentioned today thank you so much for listening and join us again soon You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com.